Hello, and welcome to episode number 140 of A Mic on the Podium, with me, Michael Seal. Before we start, I want to thank my latest Patreon subscribers, Oliver and Leo, for their support and all my other Patreon subscribers for their continued support. This podcast would struggle to continue without them, and my Patreon page has become a great place to learn about and to chat about all aspects of conducting. There'll be more about my Patreon page later on in the episode. Today, I conduct a conversation with a conductor who's held title positions in Colombia, Norway, Portugal and his native Switzerland. He also guest conducts all across the globe in both the Concert Hall and the Opera House. And from 2022, he's been Principal Conductor and Artistic Director of the Real Filarmonia de Galicia in Spain. It's a real pleasure to welcome Balder Brunimann. Baldur, it's wonderful to meet with you and to speak with you today. How are you? I know you're in Porto, which I would assume that means you're working there. But how are you today? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm great. It's beautiful outside. You know, and the good thing to work in beautiful places is you have maybe trouble in the rehearsals. You walk out out of the hall, good food, sun is shining. So I'm having a really good time. Well, I know uh, later on we'll be talking about some beautiful places you work in and have worked in that I've also worked in. And I know what you mean when you walk outside, you think, well, you know, the troubles I may or may have just had in the rehearsal, they'll disappear quite soon. You know, uh, uh, it's a sunny day and you're in a pretty place, you know, the, the mind can clear. Um, talking of pretty places, you're Swiss and uh, I don't actually know which part of Switzerland you were born in. Mm. I also don't know because the listener knows that I do my homework. I don't know what instruments you grew up playing, but I obviously you, you ended up being you know going to the music academy in in Basel. So musical family, parents, uh, brothers, sisters, or is it just come out of the blue? No, you know I grew up in a in a village outside of Basel, and um, you know my uh, my family for Swiss circumstances they were quite they had no no big access to culture, you know. Um, I learned when I was when I was young. I learned to play the clarinet in the village band, mm. because they didn't really have money to send me to music school, which was in the next bigger place and all that. And so that's how I got hooked, you know. And then we had a village library, so I got the scores out, you know. And when there was a Beethoven symphony on the radio, started to play along. Mm. And then you know the the conductor of the band said, you know, give this guy a piano because he needs to learn music properly. So um, we got an old piano, and that's how it it all came from there. And did you keep playing the clarinet once you'd started the piano? I mean, did they run side by side? Um, I studied, I studied clarinet, you know. But when I when I was at the conservatoire, um, I already got a bit busy with conducting. So uh, I played for a bit in the orchestra and all this, but it was difficult to do both. And I was. Yeah, it's just I like to keep my brain busy, you know, and I looked at my colleagues and all this and, and I thought like maybe conducting is my way to go. So, as I said, you went to the Music Academy in, in uh, Der Stadt Basel. Did you yeah. go as a pianist first and foremost and then conducting? No, um, I, I studied clarinet with conducting. Right. Yeah. Brilliant. And who yeah. was your teacher in Basel? My the my teacher used to be you know the the my clarinet teacher he he's dead now you know he was the old principal of the Tonale Orchestra, um and my first conducting teacher was uh, Felix Hauswirth who was the professor he's also retired now you know mm. this is, we we talk a long time ago yeah <laughs> 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 well I, I always ask with conducting teachers that I don't know uh, anything about um was he a stick technician? Was he a, a, a score study person like a Swarovski who barely ever talked about stick technique, apparently? Or was he somebody who sort of t ticks every box? What was his overall approach with you? Mm -hmm. You know, Felix was very methodical. Mm. You know, I, I, I learned the technique from him and, you know, he gave me like basic foundations for, you know, how to, uh, how to study scores, of course, but also the curiosity to look at non-standard repertoire you know mm. because he was always on the lookout for new and interesting things and all that so that started pretty early on yeah which i mean that's something we'll come to in contemporary music and and it, you know it's sort of a skill that some conductors just have it's a skill that i know speaking to kwame ryan mm. he he basically he's the start of his career was all contemporary music and then you know he's mm. gone on to then conduct other repertoire but it's definitely a skill um, much aligned, you know, if we want to talk in simple terms, with having a clear 
and solid technique, stick technique, don't you think? Yes, I mean for me it was a bit the other way around. I didn't I didn't start with contemporary music. I started much more with traditional repertoire, but I always thought I'm alive now and not 200 years ago. You know, I want to <laughs> yeah. do I want to feel that what I'm doing is not, I'm not working just in a museum, you know. Yeah. I'm curious what's happening, you know, and I I had just a really good time talking to the composers because, you know, you know how it is in our business. There are people who think they can still talk to Beethoven, <laughs> but actually there are people around that you can really still talk to. That's and right. um, and I uh, sort of had some interesting meetings really early on. It just got me interested in so many things. Um, the problem with contemporary music, I wouldn't call it a problem, but... Um, it's not just the, the the physical technique. There is a, tech, a, a general technical hurdle, you know, because the scores are difficult. Often, you know, the the, the, you know, the kind of music is just newer, it's a different aesthetic. You have to get into this. And often you need, a, you know, a good ear, a good physical the, the expression and all that. So, the, the, but the real problem is um, that in spite of all these technical difficulties that you can still make music. And mm. of course, if you have a bit of facility with the hands and with the ears and all this, is much easier. Yes, of course. I mean, that's it was often uh, something that Simon Rattle said when I was playing in the orchestra in Birmingham for you know the start of my career. What did you play? I was a second violinist in the CBSO for 22 yeah. years until yeah. 2014. Mm. Um, he would often say, you know, don't make a contemporary music sound here. You know, make the sort of sound you'd want to make in a Mahler symphony or in a Beethoven symphony. Yeah. Why, why, why are you making this hard contemporary music sound in inverted commas? Which is yeah. so true because, you know, you want you want to be making music with everything that you play. It's, you don't just, you know, smash it out. Um, and it goes also the other way around because sometimes in the older repertoire, you know, you also have to look for sounds that you maybe don't associate with that, you know. Mm. And so it just opens up a perspective. I mean, this week in Porto, we played the Hense Requiem. And Hense, you know, it's music, it's really vocal music. And it's, it's really very traditional. Of course, mm. the notes are not, but the kind of sounds you make, you know. Mm. And, it, and and also going the other way, and we, we're getting stuck on sound. But, you know, I've also heard Simon Rattle say the very much the same or the opposite about Mozart and Haydn. You know, why are you playing it as if it's inside some sort of glass case? You yes, know, exactly. You need to play it with a little bit more, you know, punch or drive or push or even a yes. ugly sound occasionally. And that's, you know, that's absolutely true. Um, yeah. And we go on from Basel and you become a junior fellow at the Royal Northern College of Music. Now, yeah. how did we get from Basel to Manchester? Ah, uh, you know, my old teacher, he knew about Manchester, you know, they were, they, 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 the teachers knew each other and all that. He, he said, like, look, if you want to be a conductor, go to Manchester because you the, the, you need to get some practice. In Switzerland, we, um, it was a good education, but it was a lot of it was theoretical, you know. Mm. And I just felt I needed, you know, to learn the mechanics of the, the rehearsing different with, you know, different types of repertoire, et cetera. And all. So I, pl I applied to Manchester and um, I was never in the UK before. And, uh, and they took me as a junior fellow. And it was it was an interesting time because it was in many ways completely the opposite than what I did before, because it was nearly just practical, you know. Mm -hmm. Sometimes there was no time to think about it. I mean, you know how to, you know, the music world uh, that operates in the UK and all this. But for me, it was great, you know, because I could apply many things that I learned before. And who was teaching then? Um, because now it's, I would say it's, you know, probably the best conducting department in the UK. Um, yeah. But who was teaching then? Uh, at that time, it was Tim Rennish, Ed Warren, and then they had a few guest teachers, you know, Edward Towns used to come in. Um, and I was there for two years, and then I got... A, uh, a job as an assistant at Northern Symphonia, and then I started teaching at the uh, at the Royal Northern because they wanted to start a master's course. I still lived in Manchester, and I was interested in the teaching side and all that. So that's when we started the masters at the Royal Northern, which is a big thing now, you know. Mm. Well, I mean, there's some names from the past that I know, mm. um, Tim Rennish especially. I mean, Tim Rennish yeah. is still around. Um, yeah, yeah, I know. Still conducting, still saying piano is not a quiet dynamic, or is it forte is not a loud dynamic? I can't remember which, which is which. He's got a t-shirt with it written on. Um, yes, yeah. he he had his messages written on his t-shirt, and you would say, "Read my tits," <laughs> you know, and you know. But Tim, as a great person, he was here in Porto when I was still a principal here because I sometimes I still like people looking at me, my rehearsals, and you're just pointing out the bullshit and all this. 
And so we did War Requiem, and I said, like, look, uh, come on, you know, I could get you over. Can you have a look at, you know, my rehearsing and all that? He fell asleep after five minutes, but it was nice to see him. <laughs> well, that probably means that there was nothing offending him in the rehearsal. Uh, <laughs> either that, or you started with the first movement, and, you know, it's enough to sort of lull you into a, into a sleepy state. Um, so you, went, you said you went on and became an assistant at Northern Symphonia, how long were you an assistant? And I've said this to so many people who've been assistants, that it's the most amazing job. I mean, I was lucky. I, I was assistant conductor of the CBSO whilst also being a member. So, I mean, I had all of the insights of being an orchestral yeah. player. But how was that for you, That your your time with Northern Symphonia? You know, Northern Symphonia is a chamber orchestra. And um, I, learned, um, I learned a lot, not just about professional music life, but also like, you know, ensemble that are listening they did a lot of chamber music they did a lot of things with our conductors as well mm. um so for me it was it was a very good step to take you know because i've been in conducting already a while mm. and um i suddenly got in in touch with a, a different way of uh, seeing things and it was a great school for me mm. I also didn't have a principal conductor at the time, so I got to do loads of out of town, you know, the educational concerts and so on. So it was it was great. So a, a really good sort of proving ground, a really good way of learning. Um, yes, yeah. It's also you know it was before they built the stage, you know, and um, uh, th there was a real community aspect about that orchestra. You know, the, like they were a factor in Newcastle, Sunderland, and all these places, you know, and. I learned from that too because that's where I came from, you know, in my in in the band where I grew up and all this, and I really appreciated that aspect of what they do, you know. Mm. Well, they serve a community that really has nobody else serving them uh, around there. I mean, the nearest British orchestra would be I don't know Manchester, probably uh, Leeds. I'd say the you know yes. Leeds, possibly the nearest, and then. Up above in Scotland, yeah, yeah Edinburgh yeah. and Glasgow. So yes. they are serving a big community or a big area of, of the United Kingdom there. Yes, I know, you know, but you know how it is. Sometimes people don't think that way. You know, sometimes people think, why do we need an orchestra to play in Hexham, you know, and things like that. And um, that's also one thing that I had to say was new for me in the UK because suddenly, you know, I realized that a lot of things are being questioned that wouldn't have been questioned maybe in Switzerland or so. Uh, it's just a different thing that, or, that, you know, also orchestras had to fight, you know, to really make the, the, make themselves felt in the, the, in the in the society. And that was also a big learning curve for me. And, and, and it's still going on today, as I'm sure you're aware, with mm. Arts Council yeah. cuts to orchestras now who get nothing who serve big areas of the country uh, and trying to move BBC orchestras or even merge them or shrink them. I mean, that's a, that's a different topic because that's, you know, that's the BBC internally, but, but still there's this whole thing of, and like you said, why would the people of Hexham not want to hear an orchestra? In fact, it's probably one of the highlights of their year to have an orchestra go and visit there. And, and the Northern Symphonia would want to do, go and do that. You know, it's, it's ridiculous. Yeah, but I mean, you know this better than me. You know, this is a history that has been going on for years. You know, that mm. just um, there is a, on one hand, there is a really high level of standard of cultural life. And on the other hand, there is just a complete lack of what culture does for your society, you know, of understanding what is actually contributes, you know. Mm. And then, um, of course, you know, that also goes with what people vote for, you know, but then it goes into into a direction where in, in the end you can do away with so many things, you know. But the thing, the question is, what type of country are you then left with, you know? Mm, absolutely true. Absolutely true. Um, well, we could spend a whole podcast talking about the yes. effects <laughs> of orchestras on cultures. But, yeah. I mean, I, I can touch on it by talking about, you know, the first listed place that you get a music directorship is the National Symphony Orchestra of Columbia yeah. in, in 08 for four years. And, yeah. you know, I quickly go through between 08 and the current day. You know, you've you've held jobs in Columbia, uh, artistic director in Norway, Porto, where you are now for five years, principal mm -hmm. conductor, back home in Basel uh, now, yes. uh, as well as also in uh, the Real Filarmonia de Galicia in Spain. So, mm -hmm. I mean, you've been all over Europe and also Colombia, and we're going to come to uh, South America soon, you know, these places all need, and I'm sure you did out of towns in all of those places. You didn't just sit in, in the middle of Porto. You probably played outside of Porto. Yeah. Very important jobs. Um, 
out of, I mean, just of those ensembles in particular, this is a huge question. And it's been a while since I've asked it. Uh, orchestral attitudes, you know, how how did you find them going from somewhere like Colombia to then working in Norway, to then working in Portugal? You've got sort of Latin temperaments, South American temperaments, Scandinavian temperaments. How did you find it? Yes, you know, I mean, these orchestras, they exist in the societies where they exist. You know, the, I mean, for example, in Colombia, um, we had a great group in that orchestra. They were the orchestra of the Ministry of Culture. Mm. And we played all over Colombia, you know, the, especially in the, the, you know, in the regions where they had no orchestras. They could say, like, we want a concert of the National Symphony, so we would go out. Um, and they were really aware which country they're in. So they would never complain if there wasn't a dressing room somewhere or if the <laughs> piano wasn't tuned because they knew what it meant to have an orchestra there that played mm. for people, you know. And um, you know, sometimes I wish or I'd, I had wished when, when I was working there that some people in Europe could see this because they really didn't take this for granted, you know. Um, I had to go to the ministry a couple of times and, you know, uh, and present what we do, etc. And once the Minister of Culture said to me, look, it's so important that you do this because with what your orchestra costs in a year, we could build two schools. Mm. And, mm. you know, and then, of course, you look at, you know, the, the reality of the country and you think, OK, we made them make sure that we do something useful. Mm. And I find that actually I find that I, I never had a problem with that. I thought the day we can't explain why we give something back into society that people can shut us down, you know, yes. because you, there you see what the country needs. So it really make, made you think what what we should contribute. Mm. And I agree with you about conditions um, that you sometimes find yourself in. You know, as an ex-player, you know, we used to go to certain places in the UK and complain about the seats that we sat on in the concert hall. You know, and I've been to I, to other orchestras around the place, and and you think, well, actually, just having seats is 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 a luxury itself. I, I mean, uh, I remember because we're going to go to Argentina soon, the Teatro Colón. Yeah. You've probably worked there since it was be, it's been refurbished. I yeah. don't know when it was ten years ago, but I don't know whether you ever worked there before it was refurbished. Uh, I worked I worked with the the Buenos Aires Philharmonic before they refurbished the Teatro Colón, yeah. and in the, on the very lowest floor where the rehearsal space is now, yeah. we were in an old ballroom, the outsides of which were roped off because they were rotten and you would fall through the floor. But you know the orchestra sat in the middle of this huge ballroom, and. <laughs> Yeah, when we were doing a piano concerto, the piano had to be very carefully wheeled in there for fear of going through the floor. But that was the, that was just how it was. You know, you got used to it. Yeah. It was dark. It was dusty. Now it's one of the greatest rehearsal rooms you'll ever work in. There, the big room yes. at the end of the corridor, uh, yeah. the lowest floor of the, of the Teatro Colón. But that's what it's like. You know, we played in an out of town venue, and the piano of that same week, and the piano back leg actually fell through the floor of the stage. Uh, and you know, we just had to get on with it and deal with it. And but the people who came to the concert couldn't have been happier that the orchestra was there. Yes, and that's the whole yes. point. Standing ovation, loved it. You know that, that wanted to. Yes, think. because they're also aware that it's not obvious that the, these things are happening there. You know, mm. um, you know. Sometimes I think with um, with the orchestras I worked with, it's a little bit like with. Uh, human evolu uh, evolution, you know, in the time where there's still a, a, a real risk that you get eaten by some wild, a, a wild animal, you know, um, there there were some instincts there, and you had some fears, and you would you would think what type of risks you take, and nowadays we live in an environment where you have to make up these these fears, you know, or you still have the instincts, but the problems are not there anymore, and mm. sometimes I think like um, I go and work in places where there's really um, and no obvious problem in a sense that you know, like pianos falling through the, the the through a roof or something like this, or just being things not being in the right condition. And but one needs a certain amount of problems, so sometimes people invent problems, you know. And yes. you know how it is in our small world, you know. Suddenly, the fact that I don't know that a chair doesn't have the right height or so. Yeah becomes yeah. an issue and I then I always think like I think back to my Colombia days you know yeah. where my first clarinet was shot once on the way home you know um there was just like real 
you know, the real life issues there. You know? Yes, yeah, and and and, the, and you know, we obsess about a light being slightly too bright in our faces on the stage, or you know, first world problems as they call them. Um, yes, and even worse in conducting. You know, I mean, you 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 stay in the hotels, you know, and all this. And, and then you and the, you talk to some people and they, they think like, oh, man, you know, the seat on this flight. And they think like, hey, yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, after COVID, I'm, I'm just happy to get on any flight and get out there conducting yes, again. Yes, you know, yes. COVID, you know, I sat here thinking, am I ever going to do what I used to do? But, you know, we yeah. are now and that's, that's yeah. it. I'm going to stay in South America. I'm going to jump forward a, a couple yep. of questions, and 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 it's sort of linked to what you've been saying, or what we've been talking about to do with the the love of the audiences of of mm. taking an orchestra out into the suburbs or into yeah. a, a small town. The attitudes of the players, the the music making. Mm. Now, I have often I may have told stories before about the discipline yeah. when I've been to Argentina yeah. within the orchestra being nothing like as disciplined as it is in Europe. Yeah. But I think it's because of their passion for making music. Don't you agree in the fact that, you know, you may well have somebody randomly ask you a question from the fifth desk of the second violins, which would never happen in Switzerland or in the UK. But it's all really because they love what they're doing so much and the passion is there. Yeah. Yes, I totally agree. You know, the thing is, sometimes the question, um, they didn't have the same orchestral education as we would have in a place yeah. like the UK or so. So they would see themselves as a group of players, fundamentally, you know, that sometimes becomes an orchestra and sometimes mm. maybe not quite. But um, you know what What I, I always found really um, moving in a way is that these people still have, their, their passion is still alive. And if you can ignite their, um, their sensual understanding of the music, they can sometimes get, uh, give you a weight of communication from the stage that sometimes you don't get from really good orchestras, you know? Mm, mm. And, you know, and this is also a very important part of music making. You know, I mean, in Colombia, uh, they, they sometimes we would do, I don't know, Brogner or something like really traditional and they would say, like, yes, maestro, you know, we have to learn this from you. And I said, like, no, mm -hmm. I'm learning this from you because you play this your way. You know, it can't play this the same like in, in Germany. So you bring something to this, you know, you bring a spark, you bring a rhythm, you bring, you know, your character. Mm -hmm. And I think that's sometimes, you know, in our industrialized mu music making is sometimes a bit of shame that this there's no space for that, you know. Mm -hmm. You know, and I, I, I have to say, I, the, with them often, you know, South America, many places, I'd much rather have somebody going across a red light in a performance, you know, <laughs> if it's for a good reason, you know. Mm, mm. You know. Absolutely. You, you immediately made me think of the three or four times I worked with an orchestra that I know you work with quite regularly, or quite recently. Mm. And I, I can never remember the name of it because it's one of the longest names of any orchestras ever ever invented. The Academy of Superior Arts with the the uh, of the, uh, the Teatro Colón Institute yes. Superior. Uh, it's yeah. all of those words are involved in it somehow. But it's an orchestra that's affiliated to the Teatro Colón, and they have kids in there from anywhere from 14, 15 years old up to mid twenties. And they're it's yes. a proving ground to go into both the Philharmonic and also into the Teatro Colón. And I've had I did a couple of projects there. One particular, a Shostakovich nine, I shall never forget yeah. because they just played the pants off it. But it wasn't yeah. necessarily like you would expect the Leningrad to play it or even the LSF yes. to play it. It was yeah. amazing. But whilst yeah. you are there, you can instill some of those disciplines with them yes, yes. before they go into the profession. You know, and um, I learned to. Of course, I came to Colombia. I came to Colombia because I spoke Spanish. You know, and I was interested in going to the. the uh, there and whatever, but I came with a European background, and I I learned so much there because it's I tell you what it's so much easier to um to uh, to bring some of the technical elements to it. It's mm. so much more difficult to find that sort of spark, you know. So I I thought it was it was a real pleasure to work uh, to work with them, and I, I've just been back last year. And we played in the in the in the Teatro Colón in Bogotá, which was newly newly refurbished and all this. And they still have so much of a spark. It was really nice to see them all. Mm, that's brilliant. Mm. Um, I know that you 
have taught and also coach other conductors. Mm. Um, why? I mean, I teach as well, and I know why I do mm. it, and I I, mm. I come at it from all sorts of various angles. Do you, how much do you enjoy doing it, and 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 what do you get out of it? No, I mean, I I really enjoy it. I started this from the very beginning, and I think part of the reason was maybe because I, I'm, I'm quite a brainy person myself, so in order to progress for me, I had to break a lot of things down, mm. you know, to understand. Because it's not like I can just instinct, instinctively take something on. I have to understand it first, and then I can integrate it. And, and just that lent itself a little bit to teaching, because I just, you know... I would see somebody and I think, okay, and I see what that thought process is, or I see what's not right behind that sort of movement or that sort of the idea, you know, and all this. And that's how I got into teaching. Mm. And yeah. and do you have a regular class, or are you somebody who does many sort of master classes or um, or you know private pupils? How do you how does it manifest itself? Um, I, you know, I was working at the Royal Northern for like six years at it, um, you know, from 2001 to 2007 or eight or something like that. And and after that, I didn't have a fixed job. I did with many of the orchestras. I did conducting classes in Colombia and Porto and Norway and so on. Um, but I'm just starting a new thing now in summer. I'm, uh, uh, I'm going to start working with, uh, you know, the conducting program of the Lucerne Festival. Mm. which is like you know which is going to be made from two weeks into three weeks and we have four people you know who work you know through the three weeks with the academy and all this and um it's an excellent program and i think you know it's also down my street because it's there to open a few minds you know and all that so i'm really looking forward to that because i, I was looking a little bit to with something that I can start teaching a bit more regular again. Well, I I know one of my pupils uh, went there last summer. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, he did a, a lot of contemporary music and and showed me the videos uh, of it, and he did wonderfully well. I mean, for me, teaching, you know, I I teach on a one to one basis. Uh, I'd love to do more. It's very similar to how I used to view violin teaching. Mm. I think I was a far better violin player. Mm. having taught for 10 years at the Birmingham Conservatoire, mm. because you have to break it down to be able to teach it. You know, yeah. I never used to think about how I did vibrato until I started teaching, and then I had to be able to teach somebody to do a better vibrato, or you know, all sorts of different things. And and I think it's the same with conducting. Now I teach it, yeah. I find myself conducting much better. I still watch videos of myself and think, God, that shit, I, I don't want to ever watch that again. But yeah, I, I do think it helps you. Yeah. The thing with um, with conducting teaching, it the, for me also what is interesting is that of course you know the technical aspect of it is quite small in the sense that you know it's never as difficult as violin technique, for example. Yeah. You know the technical aspect is maybe you know the ten percent, you know, but the other ninety is the application of it, yeah. and and that of course, is how you think, how you, you know, the, the, the style of the music you have in front, the people you work with, you know, the, the, what you show, what you say, you know, the way you filter, you know, through what you hear, etc. And that is really an, a journey that never ends, you know, and I'm, I may be in it for longer, but I'm not smarter for that reason than many students who have the same problems, you know, so it's great to, you know, to to analyze that. Mm. And use of language and rehearsal pacing and things like that. Yes, you know, yes, uh, I mean, I, I, I count myself lucky that you know I remember the, the playing for the people. I liked how they paced their rehearsals and how they spoke. But of course, it, that's not the same for everybody. But I think you know to be able to pass these things on, mm -hmm. um, even something like rehearsal orders. You know that yeah. or you can go and study at the Royal Northern or wherever, and, and not necessarily particularly talk about that. Um, yeah. just simple practical advices so yeah well good on you and I'm glad you teach and uh, I would imagine just having met you for 41 minutes or whatever it is I would imagine you're a great teacher because you know you have a sense of humor but you seem very organized about what you how you approach things and that I think that's very important as both a teacher and a conductor you know I uh, I try to to keep the feet of the conductors a little bit on the ground because, Good. as you know, this this is you know it is a job you have in this whole organism. You you play your part, but on the other hand, you know I see also a lot of young conductors. You know, like for example, I filter through applications for something like Lucerne or another course. I don't know, 
and you filter through applications and you know everybody conducts the same pieces and you know nowadays nowadays there are so many more opportunities for conductors you know er, you know everybody conducts a proper orchestra in the on on their videos and the, but everybody just Dvorak nine Brahms four you know the, the Beethoven five and so and you think like and you know a lot of the conducting education in many places is still like this you know like you you learn to do things in a certain way and then you know, you go to the practical music making and you have different kind of people from different kind of repertoire and all this, and then you, you just get stuck and the people just have to open up, you know, in the way they approach this whole thing, you know. I mean, I was speaking with uh, Rachel Leach, who's a presenter in, in the mm. UK, yesterday because I was working with the London Philharmonic. We were doing two yeah. concerts for school children yesterday with the London Philharmonic. And you know, we were saying that these are the hardest gigs that you have to do, but they're often the the, the very first gigs you have to do. So having learned to conduct Brahms four or Shostakovich five, you know, don't necessarily think that's going to be your, you know, that's going to be what you're going to be doing when you're twenty three yeah. and out on the circuit, unless you win yeah. a competition. The first gigs you're going to get might be an overture here or a, a a concert with eleven different pieces in five different genres there, and and that's how it is, you know, um, and and and. Trying to become, I can't remember who said this. Try and become a musician who happens, a great musician who happens who happens to conduct, rather than being, you know, looking at being a conductor in inverted commas and thinking about, you know, business class flying and and limos from the airport and staying in the best hotel suites and all that stuff that comes to only very few at the very top of our mm. profession. You know, try and become the be a really great musician who happens to conduct. You know, and that that's the the best approach, I think. You know, try. To keep yeah. the feet on the ground, I completely agree with you. You know, it's also, it's sometimes hard for young people to understand also that conducting is so subjective mm. that everybody sees it from a different way. You know, you talk to, I mean, you know, it. you talk to 10 different musicians, you talk to 10 different people in the public, you talk to 10 different other conductors, and everybody sees it in a different way. Why? Because it's just, it's very subjective. And a lot of things in conducting have nothing to do with conducting. You know, they, <laughs> yeah. you know, they're Absolutely, like, yeah. Yeah. you have people who have the most brilliant minds and techniques and, you know, know everything you could possibly know about conducting, but they just, they don't get anywhere or they're just not very good conductors because there's something lacking or because people think there's something lacking. So this, mm. you know, this subjective perception is just part of conducting. It matters how you, what you look like. It matters what, what people see as what people see you, etc., And all these kind of things, I try to sort of incorporate those a little bit in a sense that, you know, make sure you're a package that goes further than somebody who moves their hands in a particular way, you know. Mm, absolutely true. And the other thing, and it's been a while since this has been discussed, but I remember a journey many, many, many years ago on a train on a free day in Japan when I was with them mm. playing with the orchestra, and one of the extra percussionists was the principal percussion of the Bournemouth Symphony Orchestra. And mm -hmm. we got talking about conductors. We went through 25 names of conductors who conducted both the CBSO and Bournemouth. Mm -hmm. And to a man or woman, whoever we liked, they hated, or and vice versa. I, we couldn't find anybody yes. which yes. both orchestras liked. Well, actually, yes. we could find a couple that both orchestras hated, but we couldn't yes. find anybody that, that both orchestras liked. And, and there's nothing wrong with that, is there, Baldur? That's just well, the way the world is. Yes, I mean, the thing is, it's just the way the world is. You know, I mean, um, it's difficult sometimes to not just look at the trees, but to look at the forest, you know. Mm. I mean, I I read, you know, in my orchestras, I always read the musicians' feedback or, you know, talk to, to you know, everybody around, you know, and then you get all these, uh, all these different opinions. And in the end, you know, you sometimes have to take also a step beside yourselves and saying, okay, maybe people hate it, this and that and the other, but the concert was really good or was just like some magical idea or some, something really peculiar there or... Um, you know, there are many ways of being uh, of being a good conductor. The thing is, you just don't have to forget you're just a waiter. You know, you make sure you get the food to the table hot. And, um, <laughs> you know, so, you know, there is just uh, a certain, you know, a certain humbleness, you know, goes a long way in that mm. sense, you know. Absolutely true. Uh, vaguely on the on the subject of teaching and coaching and being a conductor, there is an eleventh question, Baldur, which is about score study, and okay. 
when you come to learn a new score with your pianism skills, do you sit at the piano and play from the score or do you use your inner ear? Do you start big and go in small uh, or start on page one and work to the end? And for the geeks, and after 130 odd episodes, there are plenty of geeks out there, of which I am one. Are you a red, blue, black pencil highlighter person or are you an absolutely clean, virginally white score? What's your, what's your system? <laughs> ah, I just waited for an interview that 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 uh, used virginally and conductor in the same <laughs> sentence. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> um uh, look, I went through all types of phases. You know, I mean, of course, at the beginning, one is much slower in score study and all that. Um, I learned, you know, I learned the hard way playing scores on the piano. But of course, this goes for this goes as far as a technical level of of scores. You know, yes, once you get to a certain type of scores, you can't do much with the piano anymore. And it also goes up to Europeanistic skills. Um, you know, the thing um, what. Uh, uh, what happens, what I say to pianists who become conductors is, you know, the piano, if you play the piano really well, it's easy to substitute proper learning for piano playing. Mm. And, you know, it's much more valuable, especially if you're at the start to actually do the hard work and sit down and imagine how things really sound. You know, mm. because some people are very, very skillful and they could just pick out the notes, you know, but you can't pick out the sounds, you know, mm. and a, 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 a piano is a percussion instrument, you know, so it's worthwhile going, you know, the the, the harder way. Now, in terms of uh, marking, you know, I went through all phases. In the beginning, um, I marked up things like crazy. So mm. sometimes, you know, everything was so colorful, I could just see my markings, I couldn't see them in music anymore. And so then I started not to mark anything at all. And now maybe I'm somewhere halfway. I, for example, I don't use colors anymore. I just use blue mm. because it's not too different from the black because I thought red in a way gives me the wrong message, like yeah. traffic signs, you know, and like, and blue is distinctive enough and I can still see. And I look at some of my old scores and of the standards, I, uh, I actually started buying new scores because, you know, I just did Beethoven 5 last last month and um, I just couldn't face reading the rubbish that I wrote in when I was a student, <laughs> you know, like play off string on, you know, like just things that, you know, think about in a different way. Yeah. Um, so I much, if, if some of these people uh, pieces, I, I use new scores. But in the, you know, in the lockdown, I started a little conducting thing called conducting coaching because I just had some students who sat at home and were just thinking, you know, what's happening. So um, I did a little episode on score studying and I made a few examples of different types of preparing a score and what is easier to read, etc. But, um, you know, it depends on what stage, what stage you're at. Mm. Well, I am a marker, as my, as my listeners will know. I'm a red, blue and black and they meaning... The same thing in every single score. But you're right, there are some scores I'm opening now, um, and I'm looking at them thinking, no, it's about time I bend that. There's an awful lot of rubbish written in there that I don't need. But then other scores I write more and more in, and uh, and it's fine. But, yeah, you do your own system, and I think it, over time you get to find your own way. I like mm. using the, the idea of using blue because it will make it pop off the page a little bit easier than just black. Um mm -hmm. I've had to borrow other conductor scores who only use just a normal black lead pencil and don't always see their markings. But with a blue, you would. And I think that's a very good idea. Are you a young conductor thirsty for knowledge and wanting to discover more about the world of conducting? Then my Patreon page is there for you. I'm constantly posting new content there based on my experiences as a conductor and an ex-orchestral player. And I offer you the chance to ask me any question any time of the day. For instance, you might like to ask me how to mark up a score, as we've just been discussing. When you subscribe, you will gain access to interviews, video posts, tour diaries, articles, and much more. If you pay for the whole year, then you will gain a 10% discount, and if you're a student, contact me directly and there will be a further discount. All of this can be found at patreon.com forward slash a mic on the podium. And from just £5 a month, you can gain access to this ever-growing resource on conductors and conducting. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com. Details and links to the page are in the show notes attached to this episode. Now, the all-important 10 questions with my guest, Baldur Brunimann. 
Baldur, it is time for you to navigate your way through the ten questions, like everybody else before you. And, like everybody else before you, I start with what sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? Sound I love. Um, the rain on the roof when I'm lying in bed. Mm. And uh, a sound I hate is my coffee grinder running empty. <laughs> because I have a, I'm a bit of a coffee nerd, right? Yeah. Um, so I I have a proper grinder and and all that, and it makes a nasty noise when it's out of beans. Yeah, and it's it's not good, especially if you hear it first thing in the morning. Yeah, are you one of these? I'm try struggling to remember who it was who actually took an entire espresso machine, shipped it out for a two-month run of an opera, uh, a proper big one. Um, are you that geeky on your coffee, or are you one of these who will take a sort of hand grinder and beans with you on your trips? Uh, no, I do have my coffee machine with me, but yeah. it's a, as a small nanopresso. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's, you know, he, I'm in Portugal here, and you can get, get a good coffee. Yeah. But you're somewhere in the north of Germany or, you know, the, the places where you just don't. And so it's good to have an espresso machine around. Mm. Very, very, very wise. Um, yeah, I, uh, I I have two coffees first thing in the morning and then I don't have any more because I think it would be something else I'd be addicted to. Uh, there are enough things I'm addicted to as it is. So, I'll, yeah, two coffees first thing, that's it, done. Um, uh, yes. <laughs> now then. Uh, talking about addictions, I wonder whether you've got any hobbies or anything that you would do on your 24 hours free. If you were off, what would you spend it doing? I would spend the whole day uh, cooking for friends because yeah. that's what I enjoy doing most. You know, I'm a bit of a, a, yeah, I'm a, a cook, cooking type person. You know, I live in Madrid, you know, where you, it's also it's a good cooking scene around. Loads of people like food and all this. So um, we often do this day-long parties you know where people come and then one cooks together you know or talks and cooks at the same time and drinks and then you eat and then you wash up together and then you stay on and then you cook again you know that's that this is like 24 hours well spent brilliant well that means i'm looking forward to the answer to question 10 i always look forward to the answer to question 10 but now knowing you're a cook i will look <laughs> forward to it even more um number four who would be your favorite conductor or conductors of yesteryear yeah, I mean, there, 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 there are many, you know, I, you know, talking about Argentina, Erich Kleiber, you know, the uh, the father of Carlos, um, uh, Mitropoulos, Scherchen for completely different ways, you know, because it's just people who had a completely own and personal take on conducting, you know, mm -hmm. uh, Scherchen with the whole Bauhaus approach and all this is just like, I respect people who do their own thing in a certain way, you know, and um Yes, I mean, there are many impressive people. There are Monteux, you know, and all this, yeah. I didn't know anything about... Now, remind me of his first name, Scherken's first name. Helmut? Um, um, I might have to go Scherchen and look... I have to look uh, at the no. book on, on my... Yes. On my, on my, um, because Sakari Oromo made me buy the book. Let me go and yes. look. Hang on. Hermann. Hermann. Yes. You know, that book... It's like it's from early conducting book time times, you know. Absolutely. But, but it still has some really good information because some people then, you know, go more elaborate, you know, and this, that, different repertoire and so on. But the fundamentals are very good in Scherchen's book. It was one of the first who really does it systematically. Well, the reason why Sakari made me do it was one of the very first concerts I ever conducted. I asked Sakari's advice and Sakari almost said, come around my house. And I spent three hours in his company, and it was a very secondary program. And mm. at one point, he asked me, how do you conduct a Subito piano? And I had absolutely no idea. And mm. so he said, go and buy the, the handbook of conducting by Hermann Schurken. And he talked about the end beat approach for doing um, for conducting a Subito piano, which I've used ever, ever since. He actually said to yes. me, it's a very wordy, very boring book. I wouldn't read it all if I were you, but it's very good for some basics. And he's right. Exactly, and you're, you're yes, right. Exactly, exactly. But then I've exactly. watched him conducting. And yeah, he's a very interesting character. And he, he made lots of recordings, lots of contemporary music as well. Yes, he was very, very dry as a conductor. You know, I mean, it must have not been fun being in the, his rehearsals all the time. And he was also very, very serious and all this. But I just respect, you know, all these people who uh, just say, look, this is me. I see music that way, you know, because there's so many people who 
don't have any way to see music. You know, it's sometimes it's very, it looks very nice and it's very it's smooth and it's, you know, it's nothing out of the usual and all this. And you think like, hello, you know, where are the balls? <laughs> you know, and that, uh, I respect that somehow. Mm. Well, let's see. Question five, whether there are people like that in your list of favourite current conductors or conductor. Yes, I mean, yeah, I mean, there are very many, there are many good conductors around. You know, Kirill Petrenko, of course, you know, people, Gustavo is very, very natural, you know. Mjolnwood Chug, you know, people have very natural techniques and all this, or have a particularly good approach to a certain type of repertoire, you know. I mean, mm. endlessly. I'm not somebody who is, um, you know, very critical of conductors because I, I know that it's not easy what these people do. Maybe something you particularly like about somebody's approach or not. But um, you have, in a professional sense, there are a lot of people that you that you have to respect when you know a, th- a thing about it. Mm. I mean, Petrenko's name comes up an awful lot. Myun Mun Chung, I'm not sure he's ever come up. Mm. Um, but yeah, conductor, I've loved watching. Uh, but, but yeah, Petrenko, yeah. Uh, every time he conducts, uh, I'm glued on the Berlin Philharmonic Concert Hall. Um, love is the way he conducts. And it's not always the same. Sometimes he's incredibly involved. And sometimes mm. he's almost like a jockey riding a horse and he's barely holding the reins and just smiling and yes. enjoying the journey. Uh, and, you know, I, I think... I, I I love watching and listening to his music making. You know, the thing is with conducting, it's up to certain sense, it's um, up to certain level. It's no use to watch a conductor. You have to watch the orchestra, yes. you know, because you always conduct in relation to what you have in front. And, you know, if you see that the players are really engaged, then, you know, the physical way of conducting in a way is not so important. You can mm-hmm. conduct in really, really different ways. Mm-hmm. You know, like uh, mentioning Yun Wun Chung, he, is, he, he, he works very, very effortle- uh, effortlessly, you know, just like all very, very balanced and all this. Then you see somebody like Noseda, you know, has co- a completely different physical language. But the question about um, conducting a technique is the technique doesn't matter. What matters is if you connect mm-hmm. and they, you know, and, if you connect, that's when conducting happens. So, in the way you when you see from the orchestras, if uh, if conducting works or doesn't, you know? I always watch the eyes on the Philharmonic Concert Hall of the players. Always. Mm. Well, if it's a conductor I've never seen conduct before, I might be drawn to watching them for the first I don't know five, ten, fifteen minutes. But then I'm I'm on the players. I'm watching those players, and you can see. It's not just that mm. orchestra; it's every other orchestra on every other broadcast. If the cameraman is good, the camera. Uh, shots are good. You can see if an orchestra is engaged, and you can see when they're not. Uh, and uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. I say that to my students often. Don't just watch the guy on the box or the or lady on the box. Watch the players, and also you'll see how much the players interact with with each other and take decisions out of a conductor's hands sometimes. Yes. You know, and that, but, that's important. But you, as a conductor, you try to encourage that. I mean, one of mm. the jobs. One of the jobs in the first rehearsals is to get to know the physical language of an orchestra. You know the way they breathe, the way they look at each other. You know, uh, you know for for the strings, the way they end phrases, things like that. Um, and this, you know, this is with this you get in touch, and with this you start working, you start helping it, you start shaping things. With, but it all comes from the physical language of an orchestra. In some orchestras, you have to establish that a little bit. Others already have it. Mm. But um, that's, you know, that's in a way a, a big part of, of the job. Absolutely. I completely agree. And, you know, as you said, you know, who's looking at who? And sometimes nobody's looking at anybody. They're all glued at you. And that's just the way that they are. And, you know, it's, yeah. it, it, you you do have to spend that first rehearsal trying to figure out the dynamic, you know, uh, who's who. sometimes who the big personalities are. And that they're not necessarily always principal players. They can be a second player. They can be a, a fourth horn. It could be a, a third percussionist. It could be anybody. Yes. Yeah. I often say to young conductors that if you if you do your first concerts, it's good to be able to at least do some of the music from memory because you can look at the people, you know, because you don't have that experience value yet that you get, the, you know, you feel the dynamics quite early on. So if you do a competition or an audition or you just have your first gig, you know, you have to make sure that you can actually look at people and you can breathe with them and get in touch and see how they work, you know. Um. It's, you know, this like sometimes I, 
I do a lot of the, the far out music or the things that are not so, you know, the, the, not so standard. So sometimes then when I do pieces that I, that I know from memory or whatever, I can just look at people. I think like, man, there's a whole world there, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Yes. Well, let's find out whether one of your far out uh, hard hard uh, technical challenges is the answer to question six. What is the hardest work you've ever conducted? And you can have more than one, should you yes. wish. Yes. Um, hard is, has many has many levels. You know, Absolutely. Is it, is it musically hard to understand? Is it technically hard to conduct? Is it, um, you know, I think the hardest pieces are the ones that are not meant to be conducted. You know, so a lot of classical repertoire is actually really hard. Because it's just you know like Mozart symphonies the or you know uh, the concerto you know operatic repertoire sometimes that is just you know the early things that were just meant to be led from a you know a, 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 a harpsichord or a violin yeah. you know yeah. this sometimes doesn't lend itself to what we now know as conducting and sometimes these makes these to do these pieces well really hard mm. but you know in a maybe a more technical sense I mean. What was maybe one of the hardest pieces to learn was Die Soldaten, you know, by by Zimmermann, mm. which we which we've done at the Cologne a few years ago, which is just a massive, massive, massive piece. It's it's I think it's an absolutely brilliant piece of music, but it's just so complex, things in different uh, time layers, you know, happening at the same time, and uh, just extra large orchestra with big band and you know like all sorts of extensions and so on. That was. You know, in a technical sense, that was definitely one of the hardest. I mean, we had twenty rehearsals with the orchestra alone, wow. and it was just still, it was just still is an unbelievable mountain to climb. You know, and there are some other works. Maybe I mean one work that um, that struck me as being very hard at the time was the True Sova songs by Kuwaitak, because again, they're not really meant to be conducted. Well, they must be conducted, but he didn't have conducting in mind. So <laughs> some of it is written is written very free, like Répond by Boulez, which you, you know, you have to, you have to finish the piece a little bit to make it work. It's just many gestures. So, you know, there's these, these things are hard. I think that's the first answer of somebody who said that pieces that aren't meant to be conducted and you're so right i'd not thought of it like mm. that before yes almost every haydn symphony exactly yes uh, almost all of the mozarts that even the concertos exactly yes sometimes you feel so superfluous yes to what's going on but also it, it, when you are needed it's just difficult yeah it's absolutely true yeah you know, you do things, you know, also things like Strauss waltzes very often that used to be directed. You know, it's the kind of this minute little flexibility. This is very hard to get with uh, uh, with conducting. It's much easier to get from playing, you know, and um, that's just hard in terms of, you know, uh, the, the tools you have as a conductor, you know, mm. and you try to get to, get to what a, a director does, but, you know, it's always like halfway there, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, going back to Diesel Darton, I'm not surprised you chose an opera which has extra uh, extra musicians, a huge orchestra, staging. The, and opera answers come up so often, but you're so right in the, you know, p pieces that almost shouldn't be conducted. Uh, it's just so difficult. And you're right also, Strauss Waltz is bloody hell. Um, yeah. and, and especially in the UK, you're normally given only, you know, maybe a day's rehearsal, if that. Yeah. Uh, and you could spend the first hour and a half on Deflatermaus Overture alone, let alone before you get talking about the corners of Waltz, the famous waltzes. It's yeah. Uh, yeah. The thing is, you know, there's of course we have an established routine, you know, and especially or orchestral players have that, you know, and it's really easy to do something in a in in more or less straight tempos or in a traditional fashion, etc. But uh, there are two things that are just really really hard to get. One of them is the you know. The, the, the fine mechanisms and the free type of phrasing, you know, mm. they're like these these things that don't relate to the pulse necessarily. That is more to do with speaking and so on, and the conviction of you know the the the, the emotional weight of every player. If you don't really understand, you know, this the, the freedom some of this music needs, you can't put yourself behind it because you just try to get it right. And then of course that's like when you watch the Vienna Philharmonic or so who redigested this music. You know, yes. that's this extra bit you get. Yeah, yeah absolutely true. 
Number seven, Baldur, is when travelling abroad to conduct, and you've done a lot of travelling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? Ah, well, you know, um, sports shoes, definitely, because I I gave up. I'm standing up all day, right? And I... uh, I need, you know, proper things to stand on. So I have like extra, extra thick soles and, you know, the, the set of sport shoes. Of course, my coffee maker. Mm. Um, just thinking about all these places where you can't get a uh, get a decent coffee, you know. It's yes, very, very, tr- very true about shoes. John Wilson said to me, um, who I've also interviewed for this podcast uh, uh, way back when, episode nine or something. But he said to me, yeah, don't take up conducting unless you've got some very comfortable shoes, Mike. Um, you know, for any foot injuries, if you've ever had plantar fasciitis and tried to conduct a five-hour day stood up, forget it. It bloody hurts. So, yes. yeah, uh, insoles, things that make you give you a good arch in your feet and sports shoes or trainers or anything like that, very, very, very wise. Yes, what I don't travel with is sticks. You know, of course, because, you know, I always used to tell my students, look, if you have problems with your stick technique, start to conduct with the hands because you get directly in touch with the music and all this. And then you try and do the same thing with the stick. And sometimes I used to do this, too. And at some stage, I, I thought I, I don't really need it, you know, so uh, the sticks, they can stay at home. So you don't you don't use a baton at all now? No, no, no. never. Well, there's that lovely quote I heard Yoma Panela once say to a class I happen to be in. Why have one baton when I have ten batons? And and yeah, yeah when I've done it without, uh, very occasionally, it is rather freeing. But yeah, each to the uh, I I did an interview in the, in Colombia at some stage where I gave, gave a stupid answer that may be a little bit like infamous in that sense. That journalist asked me, "What's the difference of conducting with a baton or without?" And I said, "Like, it's like it's like sex with a condom. <laughs> it's." It's safer with, but it's better without. <laughs> oh, very good. <laughs> no, I'm leaving that in. <laughs> yes. <laughs> if you send it to a journalist, it must be on the record. Somewhere. Yes, it's so, printed. <laughs> and I got, I got to the office on Monday, and everybody went like. <laughs> I read it. I read it. I went, oh. Because I thought that they would never print that, you know, but of yeah, course, yeah. yeah. Oh, brilliant. Absolutely wonderful. Um, number eight is uh, well, it could be a more serious question. It's up to wait, up to you. Number eight is what is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? Oh I would uh, you know, if I could work always at home, that would be, yes. you know, that yes. Um well, you know, there are many things. I would cut out some of the bullshit, you know, like from all different sides. Um, I would also, you know, yeah, I mean, of course, the traveling aspect is that, uh, is difficult you know, because I have, you know, small kids, you know, and all this. And sometimes I have a hard time being uh, away from home. But also, you know, um, you have to be good at being on your own. You know, because of course, you know, some places people are very social and all these others, the last people they want, the last person they want to talk to is conductor, which is fair enough, you know. Yeah. But um, I would just cut some of that, you know, some of that those dynamics out sometimes and just think, look, what happens on stage stays on stage. And mm-hmm. after that, you know, can, you're allowed to be a normal person. You know? Yeah. Why can't we share a beer together? Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And as for cutting out the bullshit, it was sort of one of the reasons for wanting to to start this podcast and interview other conductors was to find mm. out about them as people. And, you know, I, hardly e- ever have I ever had a load of PR rubbish thrown at me. I've got to the bottom of the people I've spoken to and, and found out a little bit about them, which is why the 10 questions are the 10 questions that they are. You can't yes. bullshit me in those. Um, you know, that you have to be a human being as well as a conductor. And I, I think it's important. I really do. I don't know whether that's because... You know, like you were saying about being a, a you know a Swiss conductor in a Latin American mm-hmm. orchestra, and that whether this is because this is an ex-orchestral player who now conducts a, ter- a, ge- a you know a poacher turned gamekeeper. You know, I mm-hmm. never liked the bullshit when I was a player, so why would I be bullshitty now? Um, yes, yes, yes. I, I, I don't like it. I, you know, we're, but, in, we're just musicians who want to make music with you. And we just happen to do it <laughs> with or without a baton, uh, and 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 you know that's all I am. I, I, there's no bullshit about me. 
Yes, but but you know this is this is this is a much bigger issue. You know this is this the bullshit factor around classical music. You know because yes. there's a there's a classist element about the classical music. I mean, you can read Bourdieu or many things that that actually does a lot of harm to classical music. You know, and and conducting is just a very visible side of that. You know, I mean, you you must have watched Tar. You know, with Cat. I Kate haven't Blanchett. watched it actually yet. I haven't. Yeah. Have you? Have you? What did you think of it? Um. I it got me so bloody upset, you know, and I'm really a Kate Blanchett fan, you know, right. but I thought it was so wrong on so many levels. I, I thought it was misogynist and it was reinforcing so many cliches about classical music that, you know, a lot of us, we work that, you know, against those cliches, you know, to yes. invite people in and then somebody makes a movie who has millions of viewers reinforcing all the abuse of power, you know, the, the like the, the luxury aspect of we are like high middle class society and either you know or you don't, do you belong or you don't. Don't and it's just all wrong. And mm. I I just I just hated it. I really hated it. Well, you're you're not the first person who hated it, and it's yeah. putting me off watching it. But I feel I have to. I feel like yes, you, you have to. to. Yeah, I feel like yeah. you know, it, even if it you know gives me some sort of aneurysm, uh, well then you know, well I'll have to watch it. But yeah. <laughs> thank you for warning me. Um, yes, uh, I wonder. Yeah, whether you have I, to watch it though. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I well, I, I will. I will. Yeah. Um, I wonder whether cooking is going to be the answer to question nine. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Look, I mean, I do like cooking, but, you know, to do it professionally is a very hard job. Yes, you it know? is, yeah. yeah. Um, and it, it's that uh, I wouldn't put that up my, at the, on the top of my list because if I would do another job, I would do something where I can work a bit less, you know, mm. where it's not so, you know, because... I, you know how it is, you know, and I do a lot of new repertoire because I'm curious, but it takes a long preparation time and this and that and the other. Absolutely. Um, but I would do something. Um, I would love to be a writer, you know, the, or something that I can actually make something, maybe not necessarily a painter. I like really, uh, really brainy things. I like philosophy and, you know, I just like to be around books. Maybe I would have been a librarian or something. But um, yes, cook would be a hard job. This is, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, it's also too similar to what we do in the fact that you know, even if you make it as a high-powered chef, you know, Michelin-starred chef, you're the guy telling everybody to do, you know, get that recipe right. I told you to put that in there for 10 minutes, not 15 minutes or whatever. You know, uh, running the pass and doing all of the other stuff, being involved with front of house, being involved with PR, being, in, you know, it's too similar to some degree. Whereas, yeah, it sounds like something in literature may well suit you better yes i mean you did um i don't know how it is in the uk you know but i mean in spa in spain like some of the cooks they, they became real celebrities you mm. know that you know and um and then you get a little bit of an insight into the type of dedication it it takes you know people get up at five in the morning uh get to the the, the providers you know and they just live for that and the, and the quality you know the extra bit of quality that distinguishes them and i really admire that but um, in my next life, I want to do something slightly less stressful, you <laughs> yeah, know. And indeed. so, you know, also, you know, so. Well, yeah. they don't just turn up at their kitchen and do the day job. Like no, us, you know, you just yeah. said, you know, sitting next to me now, I've got two scores open. That I, the yeah. minute we, fi we, we finish recording and I save it and put it on GarageBand, I'll go back to learning my scores. And that's what we do. And chefs are doing the same. They're they're in at five in the morning in their experimental yeah. role, designing new dishes or trying something out or yeah. you know refining something to go on their menu next month. You know yeah. they're not they don't just turn up, cook the menu, and then go home again. Uh, yes. Far from it. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, working less is not a no not a bad thing at all. <laughs> As I said earlier, Baldor, when I found out about your cooking on your. Answer to question three. I'm looking forward to your answer for question 10, which is, if the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? I have a place I want to go to once in my life before, you know, the, which is a, is a place in the in, in the Basque country, which is fundamentally, it's a village restaurant, uh, a guy who had a, a grill and um, everything is grilled. And he just, he spent his whole life perfecting grilling technique and he has two Michelin stars now. It's called uh, Asador Echebarri. It's in a small the, uh, small village. He makes his own roast. He makes his own flavored coal and all this. And it's just such a great 
approach to cooking, you know, taking something so fundamental, like, mm. you know, mm. just putting it uh, on top of a flame, you know, to such a level. That's one thing I want to try before I'm dead. I'm smiling. My mouth is watering because <laughs> I know about this restaurant. I know yeah. about it. I've never been. We're going uh, for our family holiday to uh, north of Spain. Uh, I, I'm going to find out how near it is, uh, see if I can get a table. I've heard about it. Uh, and my God, yes, I'd love to go there. The other place I'd like to go, and because of our mutual love of Argentina, is in Mendoza, and it's called the Siete Fuegos, and it's run by Francis Malvin, the Seven Fires, and all of the meat is cooked on seven different ways of cooking with fire. Sounds like, you know, we have, yeah, you're smiling and grinning. Uh, we have a, a mutual love of meat cooked over a fire. That sounds great. Yes. What, <laughs> what would you wash it down with? Ah, you know, in Argentina, there are lots of good options, you know, lots of good Malbecs and all this, you know, but uh, in Spain as well. I mean, they're like, there's such a big variety of good Riberas, you know, and all this, you know, and even here in Portugal, people don't know so much about Portugal, but Portugal has excellent wines, you know, yes. the excellent reds to go with meat, etc. Mm. Well, I often say at the end of these podcasts, it would be nice to meet over a glass of something. Mm. But now the grins on our faces talking about meat grilled over an open fire. Sod the glass of wine. Let's go for it. <laughs> fire up a barbecue and do that. Because next, I hope one day very soon that we can meet and carry on chatting. Because it's been absolute joy to chat with you, Baldur. And let's cook some meat over an open fire and drink some red wine together. Thank you. Thanks, Michael. And thanks for doing this podcast. Because I think our world of needs you know, this kind of approach, you know, we talk about the things as they really are, you know, and so often, you know, need to cut the bullshit out. And I think you do this really well. And it's great that you do what you do. A mic on the podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I chat with a British conductor who founded his first orchestra in 1976 and has since founded three more. He's held title positions in France, Belgium, Italy, Portugal, Russia, Mexico and Chile. And in January 2023, he became the music director of the Teatro Colón in Buenos Aires. But until then, bye bye.